Thy Kingdom Comes, I don't know if you came to that uh, Thy Kingdom Come event or not, but Michael does that and basically organises all the worship at the cathedral and uh, events. Organising Thy Kingdom Come is pretty miraculous because I don't want to um, betray any of my ministerial colleagues, but you get suggestions that are sublime. And you get r- suggestions that are ridiculous as well. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Michael manages to honour all of them and uh, somehow conveys that ev- everything's, uh, everything is valued and everybody is valued. And at the same time, come up with an event that actually makes sense and holds together and is thoroughly in- enjoyable. So uh, I- I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you a bit, Michael, over the last year. And I'm absolutely um, thrilled to have the, the cathedral from, from my neck of the woods, my sort of new churchy, charismatic neck of the woods, um, my, my, my colleagues can't believe that the cathedral have said yes to putting their, their, even their badge on, our little, on the little leaflet for the School of Theology, which is very funny if you come from where I am. But um, a- anyway, I'm really thrilled. So let's welcome Michael as he comes to speak to us. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your extremely kind um, welcome. I think I want to begin by echoing what uh, Richard has said about the marvellousness of this school of theology. I don't think that the churches in Worcester before have engaged in um, teaching together, learning together, studying together, and I think that is um, an extraordinary and remarkable and wonderful development in our ecumenical um, relationships um, together. Um, uh, just to sort of um, give you a little bit my, about my own background, before I came to the cathedral uh, six years ago now, I was the priest of a parish, um, uh, a market town in, in Devon, in West Devon, and there was um, an ecumenical um, sort of setup there in the sense that the ministers had lunch, uh, I think monthly, um, uh, together, and um, of however many denominations there were in the town, it must have been probably um, up to about ten, um, the lunch was attended by two or three people. We brought our own sandwiches, um, which is deeply symbolic, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's our own sandwiches. We ate them in our own little sort of, you know, plates. Um, and then we, we disappeared, you know, within an hour, as basically as soon as possible, um, as soon as we could get away. Um, and um, after a while, um, it occurred to a few of us that this wasn't the ideal way of sort of conducting uh, Christian relations. And we made a commitment as leaders to do two things. We agreed that we would pray together um, weekly on a, on, a, on a Wednesday morning, um, just for, for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Uh, and we would meet uh, monthly of an evening um, to discuss uh, matters in common, though those were two really costly commitments um, to give up an evening a, a month when the diary is extremely filled anyway that was um, hugely um, costly in terms of time uh, and um, praying together weekly uh, as well. but actually that commitment paid off hugely in the sense that it began to develop the relationships that were then able to be strong enough to withstand the strains of difference when the strains of difference um, inevitably come up. Um, 
Uh, I remember one occasion we got onto the subject on a, one of our evening meetings on the subject of sexuality. We had different views within uh, the room. Uh, and actually because we had been meeting together for sufficiently long enough and I think even more critically praying together for long enough, actually we were able to work through that difference uh, so that we could still be effective in terms of our mission as um, Christians within the town. So we set up together um, street pastors because there wasn't a street pastors group um, at that time in the town, um, a food bank, uh, debt advice, uh, something called healing rooms which was a sort of um, place where people could just sort of drop in off the street and receive um, prayer, um, youth work in the secondary school, I mean all sorts of um, wonderful initiatives grew from that commitment simply to meet together and uh, and pray together. When we were when we would um, when we uh, prayed together on a, on a Wednesday morning, sort of after the prayers had finished, we'd be sort of sitting there in our little circle and we'd sort of then get chatting. And it wouldn't be very long before we were taking the Mickey out of each other um, as, as as leaders. And I think actually once you get to the point of um, you know taking the Mickey out of each other, then you, you've got to you've got to quite a good point, haven't you? So um, so so I do. Um, I'm a thorough fan of of, of this school of um, theology, and I'm very honoured and delighted to be um, contributing to it. And as if by divine providence, it is remarkable and wonderful that the very first session and occasion of the school is on the very first day of the week of prayer for Christian unity. How utterly wonderful um, is that? Richard, of course, designed um, the dates with exactly that in mind. <laughs> um, but just, um, just, to, just to get a flavour of us, I don't want to sort of embarrass um, anybody, but just um, let's, in order to get a sense of which different um, fellowships, we may not even be from a, a, a church fellowship, which is absolutely even more wonderful still. Um, but just sort of put your hands up. Who's from Hope Church? Fantastic. Who's, you are as well, Richard, that's, 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 that's very good. Um, um, City Church, um, Freedom Church, um, the Cathedral, there is, yes, splendid, marvellous. Um, um, somebody from Dines Green, yeah, fantastic, great, marvellous. Um, somebody from Bromsgrove, a church in Bromsgrove, lovely, great, fantastic. Um, any Roman Catholics here? Well, we'll pray for them to come next time. That's fine. Um, any, any other churches? St. Paul's. I'm so sorry. I should have um, thought of St. Paul's. Malvern. Fantastic. Great. Lovely. Christian Life Centre Hereford. Marvel. Fantastic. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Great. Any others? Fantastic. Isn't that absolutely fantastic? And what the what's the Baptist Church? Wonderful, isn't this absolutely fantastic? Really wonderful. Something um, to give um, great thanks to God for. So the format of this next sort of half of um, of this morning, um, as I think Richard said, um, uh, we've got about just under half an hour now until the next um, coffee break. Um, quarter of an hour um, for coffee. Uh, and then we sort of regroup for a final hour. Um, I think, um, sort of looking um, sort of at the material that um, Richard prepared, I've got um, slightly less than Richard had, so, um, so um, the pace will slightly slacken off from this point onwards, so, uh, so don't worry if you think the temperature on the oven is going to be turned up. Um, you've sort of got a, an easy coast uh, now, um, down, to, down to half past twelve. 
Um, and uh, the subject which I've, I've got is the Trinity, the relationship at the heart of the universe. And I think the idea of um, these uh, Saturday mornings is, uh, is essentially to split them in half and to have the first half uh, biblical and the second half, if you like, um, doctrinal, um, looking at belief. And I think, I mean, that's a fantastic uh, combination, looking at scripture uh, and what we believe, uh, because what we believe comes out um, of scripture and is uh, informed by it. So it seems to me the perfect um, combination. And some people, when they contemplate um, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, uh, might think, oh, crumbs, this is sort of the nightmare uh, doctrine because um, it's really very complicated and we can't understand it. It's a complete um, mystery and we can never hope to get our minds around it. Uh, in the Church of England we have something called Trinity Sunday uh, and you may think well that's bizarre in itself. Why do we have one Sunday when we focus on the Trinity when surely you know, we should be focusing on God the Holy Trinity all the year round. There is actually a very good reason why the Church of England ha has uh, Trinity Sunday, and it's the Sunday after Pentecost, always the Sunday after Pentecost. And it's as if, for the first time on that Sunday, well, not for the first time, but sort of for the first time within um, the church year, we can begin to make sense of God the Trinity because we've heard the story of God being made known in Jesus and then sending forth the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. So the, f the Sunday after that is the first available opportunity when, as it were, we can take stock uh, and consider uh, God in God's um, completeness. Um, so that's why the Church of England keeps uh, Trinity Sunday. Interestingly, this year on the 7th of June, which is when we're going to be having a big Thy Kingdom Come um, event in Worcester Arena uh, where we're um, encouraging uh, every local Christian to come along, not only themselves but also to bring along a friend um, with them uh, to hopefully introduce them to something of Christian faith. But it's certainly the case I think in the Church of England that when you get um, as, a, as a preacher you get put down for Trinity Sunday, you think oh crumbs you know, this is really, I've drawn the short straw um, and um, um, this is the most difficult one of all. Well I want to suggest to you that I don't agree with the notion of the Trinity as a, as a nightmare um, for three reasons. Uh, the first reason, um, now um, I, I'm, I'm, not, um, I, I'm not very good on, on PowerPoint, um, I'm sort of a bit of a novice and I know Richard's very good at sort of getting things to flash up uh, bit by bit, I couldn't, he does not do that, oh right, okay. <laughs> Credit where credit is due. Um, uh, I'm afraid I'm equally as incompetent as Richard, so I've sort of duplicated my sides and sort of put each one in red um, rather than get them flash up one at a time. Uh, but the first reason that I disagree with the Trinity being um, uh, a nightmare is that it's a mystery anyway, in the sense that we are finite human beings. We're limited, we're partial, we're incomplete. Um, our minds and brains are conditioned by our, our genes, our upbringing, um, our social context and all, you know, sort of, you know, sort of what sort of sleep we had the night before, etc, uh, etc. Et so um, we, I think I would take that for granted, that God is a mystery. 
Um, we can't get our heads around God, and to think that we can sum God up um, is, is, is ridiculous. Um, and so um, I would take that um, as, take it as read. The second reason um, why uh, the Trinity is not um, a nightmare is that Christians came up with the idea in the first place. Now, when I say that they came up with it in the first place, I'm not saying they invented it. The Trinity is an idea which is um, implicit in Scripture. In a few places, very few places, we will look at these, it's explicit, but only in a very small handful of places is the doctrine of the Trinity explicit in Scripture. It's generally implicit, and Christians spent the first few hundred years of their existence um, bringing it to the fore and working out exactly um, what it meant. So if those early Christians came up with the idea of God, the Holy Trinity, uh, then at least we should be able to work out how they did it. We ought to be able to follow um, their thinking and try and understand things with them. So that's the second reason um, that it's not a nightmare, is that um, it's uh, human beings have articulated it in the past, and so we should be able to work out um, how and why they did so. And thirdly, um, God gave us brains, and God expects us to use them. Um, we have been given um, critical, rational faculties, the ability to reason and think. That's God-given, and God wants us to use that to the full, to stretch ourselves. Um, I think that um, the angels in heaven are rejoicing that we're learning and studying um, here together this morning. Uh, and so that's a third reason uh, why we shouldn't shy away from the Trinity, um, because I think God expects us to get um, stuck in. So, um, where to start um, with the doctrine of the Trinity? And um, I would start, um, personally, with um, children. And uh, uh, we're told uh, in the Gospels, Jesus tells us, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child um, shall never enter it. Uh, and I wonder how you would uh, approach the doctrine of the Trinity if the head teacher of your local primary school asked you to go in and give an assembly about it, what would you say? How would you um, approach the subject um, with those primary school children? Because I think that is a, a good way in for us to, to think about it. How would we explain it um, to them um, can be a good way of thinking. How would we um, make sense of it um, ourselves. Similarly, um, how would we explain it um, to what you might call sort of children in faith? That is to say, um, people um, who in the New Testament terms are sort of being um, fed the breast milk um, of, of, of Christian uh, doctrine and ex explanation. Uh, those who are preparing to be uh, baptised or confirmed in faith, coming new to the faith, when people are baptised, certainly in the Anglican Church, we say to them, I baptise you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We use a Trinitarian formula. Um, so actually, we should be able to be able to say um, to the newly baptised, actually, what we understand, um, uh, what that means, what um, uh, we mean when we actually do and say that to them uh, in the actual baptism um, service. Uh, and uh, if I was giving a, a, a school assembly on the doctrine of the Trinity, um, then I'd begin by sort of unpacking um, what the word um, means. And I always think of Trinity as tri-unity. 
Uh, tri-bit being the same as triangle, tripod, tricycle, um, obviously three, and the nitty bit of trinity um, standing for unity. Um, in other words, the word trinity means three in one. Um, uh, I think, technically, um, those of you who are Latin scholars will be able to know this better than um, me, I think the word trinity simply comes from the Latin um, for threefold, trinitas, um, but I, I find it helpful to think of it as tri-unity, three in one. And it's absolutely perfectly possible to have something which comes to us in three forms. It's a concept which we're perfectly um, used to getting our heads round. For example, when it comes to dishwasher tablets, uh, we have detergent, we have rinse aid, and what else do we have? Salt, thank you very much indeed, all in one handy dishwasher sachet. Okay, so it's perfectly possible to have one thing that comes in three parts. Um, uh, another illustration beloved of Christian preachers is a clover leaf. Um, it's got um, three leaves, unless you happen to find a four-leaf one, or is it the other way around? Is it four leaves and then you find a three-leaf one? Which way round is it? Right the first time. They're generally three leaves. Um, yes, that would four leaves would cause complications from a Christian point of view, wouldn't it? Um, um, uh, but it's one leaf. It's one leaf consisting of three leaves. We haven't got um, a conceptual problem with that. Another illustration, um, I, I should say um, I have submitted to the authorities of the theological school um, these slides, so um, you will be circulated with them if they have your email um, address. Um, I should have said that. Um, uh, apologies that they weren't circulated in advance. Another illustration beloved of uh, Christian preachers is uh, ice, water and steam. It's one thing, it's H2O, um, but it comes in three different forms. We're perfectly used to that. That's not a problem at all. There's a slight deficiency in that image, and that is that H2O can't be those three things at the same time. Um, and that is why um, the uh, illustration of Pat Smith um, is a slightly better one, because she is a mother uh, to some children. She is also a teacher um, at her local school, and in her spare time on a Friday and a Saturday evenings, she acts as street pastor in the local community. When she is acting as a mother, she is still a teacher and a street pastor. When she's a teacher, she's still a mother and a street pastor. When she's a street pastor, she's still a mother and a teacher. She is one person, Pat Smith, uh, but we identify three different aspects to her. Indeed, um, I mean, this might be an insight perhaps into um, sort of the in, inner Trinitarian relations, the intra-Trinitarian relations. Uh, maybe if she's doing um, homework with her child as a mother, um, she may find that the teacher side of things comes out. In fact, she may say to herself, that's the teacher speaking in me. Well, there we are. And as soon as we've got the teacher speaking to the mother in Pat Smith, maybe we have an insight there um, into the different relations within um, God, the Holy Trinity. So um, it's, it's one God, but God comes to us 
um, in um, three ways, if we can thank, thank to have the next um, slide. We talk of God, um, the Father, who is the one who made the world in the beginning of time, um, uh, through the Big Bang and evolution. Um, some people um, believe in, in creation. We're not going to go into that um, debate um, this morning. God the Father made the world. Um, God the Son um, is the person of Jesus Christ, um, who popped up in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And then um, God the Holy Spirit, who is um, uh, the, the force, the power of love and joy and peace, which is abroad in the world uh, today. One God, but we can identify these three aspects um, to God. Or, to put it another way, and actually I rather like this way of thinking about it, rather than sort of saying there's one God and there's three bits. Uh, if we start with the three bits uh, and think that there's one God behind them, um, sorry, just if we can just go back, is that all right? Um, <coughs> how do we get back? <laughs> Quick technical interlude. That's right, don't worry. Just, just um, envisage that previous slide. God the Father, God the Son, and God the, um, the Spirit. Um, the, um, if we think of it um, in, in, in three ways, but one God behind it, the very same God who made the world is exactly the same God who was in Jesus Christ, who is exactly the same God as exists in relationships between people in the world today. I think looking at it that way round um, puts it in the most amazing and extraordinary way. Um, when um, uh, I prepare uh, couples for, for, for marriage, one of the, um, the tasks of, uh, of ministers, and we look at the sentence of scripture in um, the first letter of John, God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. What we are saying is the love which made the universe, which was incarnate, embodied in Jesus Christ, is the very same love which is in operation between these two people. Is that not absolutely utterly extraordinary? That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is helping to us appreciate. It's the very same God uh, that exists, um, not only, of course, between wedding couples, but in loving relationships between um, all sorts of people um, in the world today. Um, now, I'd like to approach um, the Trinity um, in three ways um, and look at it biblically and historically and um, rationally, um, if that's the right word uh, to use. Um, Anglicans occasionally are proud of um, saying that they have three sources of authority um, in their belief and their faith. One is scripture, one is church tradition, and one is uh, human reason. Actually, I, I, I don't think that that is unique to Anglicans at all. Actually, I think that's probably... Um, something which all Christians participate in. Um, for example, um, um, if we take um, the first half of the, this morning, Richard's um, exposition to us of John's Gospel was clearly based in, in Scripture. It was clearly biblical. 
It was informed by um, a certain church tradition. Um, Richard comes from um, a, a Protestant tradition, um, sort of um, independent um, evangelical um, um, church. Um, and also, um, Richard was engaging his, his brain as well. Um, that, that, is, that is true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. um, uh, so, so, so. Um, all three of those um, approaches were were in play. Um, so I don't think actually that the, this, the combination of these three sources of authority is unique um, to Anglicans, but for some reason Anglicans um, seem to like to make something of them. They talk about a three-legged stool, um, <laughs> which is always sort of, you know, not the most stable um, of chairs, is it? Um, anyway... Um, 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 in the first letter of John in Scripture, um, it talks of, of, of blood and water and the Spirit, and it says, these three agree. Um, now, I, I don't want to get into what that means, and I don't want to talk about blood and water and, and Spirit, but I, I'd like to use that, pinch that phrase, um, and suggest to you that these three approaches, the biblical approach, the historical approach, um, and the rational approach, actually all point us um, in the direction um, of, of, of God, the Holy Trinity. I mean, you could say I'm, you know, I'm bound to say that, but um, um, I mean, that's fine. You can, you're, you can disagree with it um, if you like, and that's um, absolutely fine. So let's um, begin with the biblical approach, and then I think we'll pick up the other two approaches um, after our next coffee break. Um, all three parts of God um, can be found um, in the Old Testament. That, I think, is the biblical approach um, to the Trinity because it's showing us that there is plurality in God from the very beginning, from the beginning of the Bible onwards. So, for example, let's have a look at those parts of Scripture which talk about the Father uh, in the Old Testament. And there are different um, sorts of these bits of Scripture. There are some passages of Scripture which talk of... Um, uh, Israel, the people of Israel, as God's son, and therefore God as the father of the people of Israel. Um, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, uh, is an example of God talking of Israel um, as my son. The prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 49, um, a passage which may be familiar to you, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says God to God's people. In other words, God is portraying God's self through the prophet Isaiah in a, a parental way. Uh, in fact, in this context, actually, um, a maternal um, way, uh, certainly uh, in, a, in a parental way. Uh, that is how um, God is conceiving of God's own relationship with God's um, people. Later on in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 63, um, this is um, the people of Israel speaking, uh, you, O Lord, are our Father. So there is in the Old Testament um, a conception of God as the Father of God's people Israel. There's also uh, notes, tones, resonances of God as the father of people who are in particular need. Psalm 68 verse 5, father of the fatherless, defender of widows, God in his holy habitation. Um, those who are um, orphaned uh, don't need um, to despair because God 
is their father who will um, look after them in a way that um, a good father um, would do. So God is the father of those who are in particular need. And then there are also resonances in the Old Testament of God as um, the father of a special person, um, a person who is looked forward to, anticipated, um, a coming one. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is talking um, to David uh, and he's making a covenant with David and with David's house. And he's saying that he's going to raise up a descendant after David, an important person who will build him um, a house and do other um, marvellous things. And he says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Uh, And uh, Christians quite naturally have interpreted that uh, messianically as a messianic prophecy, as a prophecy uh, about the coming um, of uh, Jesus Christ. So there are certainly passages in the Old Testament which conceive of God as a father to Israel, to those in need, uh, and to a particularly special um, chosen person as well. Um, any, do any other passages strike you from the Old Testament in which um, the fatherhood of God is spoken of? Psalm 2, verse 7. Um, and c- can you tell us what it is? Um, this is in the Lectern Bible. Um, I will tell the decree Yahweh said to me, that's God, you are my son today. Fantastic. Yes, indeed. Uh, which is taken up, I think, quite a bit in the book of Hebrews, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic one. Thank you very much, um, indeed. Um, but it's not just um, the father. God is not just depe- depicted in the Old Testament in, in, in fatherly ways. God, um, the, uh, the Spirit, also gets a look in um, in the Old Testament. Um, and um, significantly, I think, in the very second verse of the whole of scripture. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. There's already differentiation within God in the second... I mean, you couldn't get sort of more close to the beginning of the whole Bible th- than that, could you? You're, you've got God mentioned in verse 1, God made the heaven and the earth, and then the spirit of God, so not God in God's self, but the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So as soon as possible, at the beginning of the Bible, you've got differentiation within God spelt out. And the Spirit of God is said to come on particular people um, at particular times for particular purposes in particular ways. So, for example, um, in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, uh, Samuel um, comes to, to Jesse to anoint one of his sons, and you may be familiar with the story. The sons of Jesse um, all pass in front of Samuel, and Samuel looks them up and down and, and sort of shakes his head. No, not, not him, not him, uh, not him. Uh, and uh, they get to the end of the sons, um, and, um, and uh, Jesse says, well, that's, that's it, chum. And Samuel says, um, oh, well, this isn't quite going according to plan. Um, Surely you must have another. And Jesse says, well, yes, but, you know, he's the smallest and the youngest and he's, you know, he's looking after the sheep. He's, you know, some way off. And uh, Samuel says, well, um, um, we're not going to sit down until he comes. So (laughs) 
<laughs> not even just for, for a moment. No, no, we've all got to stay standing up. So, um, uh, so anyway, um, they go and get uh, uh, David, and David comes in, and uh, Samuel anoints him um, king. And then there's a comment um, uh, uh, on this story. The Spirit of God came mightily on David from that <laughs> day forward. So that was clearly um, that anointing. Um, uh, by Samuel with oil was um, a clearly a critical uh, moment in the life of David for being filled um, with God's uh, Holy Spirit. Um, and then also, it's not just the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters at the beginning of creation, it's not just the Spirit filling particular people at particular times, but there's also a looking forward to someone who is going to be filled with the Spirit in particular. So, for example, Isaiah uh, chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me um, for all sorts of tasks, to bring good news to the oppressed, liberty to captives, release to prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, etc., etc., which is interpreted um, messianically, um, interpreted as referring to Jesus. Uh, and, in fact, Jesus himself applies it to himself, when in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue um, in Nazareth uh, fairly soon after his baptism, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, it's given to him to read, uh, and this is precisely the passage that he chooses, and he sits down and he says, today this scripture has become fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is all about me. Um, I mean, he doesn't say that because... You know, that would be saying this is all about me. Um, but, you know, uh, he says it obliquely. Um, and, uh, and, and there we are. Um, uh, here is uh, a prophecy, a part of the Old uh, Testament, um, talking about the Spirit of God um, and envisaging one who is coming, who is going to be um, filled with that same Spirit. Uh, just a quick, um, any other particular Spirit um, passages that come to mind off the top of your heads? There will be more um, than those, those three. And then just to round um, things off before we take um, coffee, um, uh, Jesus also gets um, a look in in the Old Testament as well. Um, there is, for example, that rather intriguing story about um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the prophecy of Daniel. And if you were at Sunday school like me, then the way you remembered uh, those three was that you shake the bed, you make the bed, and to bed we go. Um, um, I just offer that to you if you have difficulty with those um, names. Um, isn't Sunday school great? Um, and they get put into the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to a statue or whatever they won't um, do. Uh, and the king looks in the fire and says, this is really rather odd. Um, did I not put three people in the fire, uh, but I can actually see four people in the fire, uh, and the fourth one has the appearance of an angel. Uh, now, who is that fourth person? I don't think it's an angel, because it has the appearance of an angel. Um, uh, so uh, that implies it's not um, an angel um, itself. Um, it can't be God the Father, uh, because no one has ever seen God, as John's Gospel tells us. Even Moses was only allowed to see um, the back of God. Um, and um, I don't think it could be the spirit because the, um, the Hebrew word, as the Greek word for spirit, is the same as breath uh, and wind. So uh, scripture interprets or envisages um, P 
pictures the Holy Spirit as a sort of as a as a as a, as a breath or or wind, and this is distinctively a person. And Christians, um, you, you know, it's it's there are always difficulties in reading things uh, back into things, but Christians have quite naturally interpreted this fourth figure in the fiery furnace um, as Christ sort of making, as it were, um, an early appearance. Um, Isaiah chapter six. Um, uh, this is where Isaiah has the vision which commissions him for his uh, prophecy. Uh, he sees um, God high and lofty on a throne um, in the temple. Angels are um, uh, in attendance uh, on, on him. He actually gets very worried because he th- he's, he, well, he has um, seen God. So in fact, actually, uh, it's interesting to compare him with Moses um, in that respect. Um, and he gets terribly worried um, uh, because no one can see God and live, so that implies he's sort of shortly going to get it um, in the neck. Um, and an angel comes along with him and with a pair of tongs, um, and, a, and a live coal and puts the coal on his lips which can't have been a pleasant um, experience um, at all a live coal um, and says this is uh, dispensing with your sins your sins are being uh, blotted out uh, then he hears a voice from the throne whom shall I send and who will go for us well there's only one person sitting on the throne so why is it plural why is it us that I think is really intriguing um, it's as if God is speaking of God's own self in the plural. Um, interesting. Um, and then um, uh, John, um, in John's Gospel, uh, okay, this is the New Testament, but it's it's sort of it's um, it's looking back to the old. Father, this is um, um, uh, what uh, Richard referred to us earlier as the high priestly prayer of Jesus at his Last Supper. Um, uh, with his disciples father I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world uh, and without repeating what Richard has said in the very beginning of John's gospel in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and then in verse 14 of that first chapter of John's gospel and the word became Flesh. So John's gospel clearly envisages um, Jesus in some form, call it the word, rather than Jesus himself, um, uh, in the beginning with God. Not to be totally identified with God, distinct from God, and yet also at the same time um, God. So, um, so there's Jesus as well as the Spirit and the Father uh, sort of going back um, from the beginning of Scripture uh, onwards as well and all this points to this biblical witness points to um, and this is the, the most technical I'll get um, this morning so um, so just um, hold on to your seats and sort of brace yourselves and this will be it and it's all over um, um, the word um, perichoresis uh, which is spelt like that which is simply the Greek word for rotation uh, but it's a word which theologians have often used to describe the intertwining of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from the beginning onwards. Uh, Sometimes um, it's referred to as the divine dance. Uh, And I found this uh, picture online of the three persons of the Holy Trinity in a perichoretic dance, uh, and I was particularly taken by this person here. who's adopting a position that I can only ever dream of. 
Um, and whether that's the, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit doing a high kick, I'll, I'll leave to you to, um, to decide. Um, uh, but perichoresis, the divine dance, the biblical witness, um, uh, as, as we've just looked at it together, um, I, I think points to um, a dance of the three persons of the Trinity um, from the beginning of time um, onwards. Uh, and when we come back um, after um, uh, coffee, perhaps just one more um, slide. The, the, the title um, which Richard um, gave me, The Relationship at the Heart of the Universe, we could say from this biblical witness actually that relationship is the heart of the universe. Um, the relationship um, within God's own self um, which, which draws us in um, to fellowship and um, communion. Uh, but more of that um, after the break. 11.35, if we're back in our seats, uh, it's a chance for more coffee. <laughs>